Today's reading comes from Nehemiah 13. Now before this, Elisha the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I had asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and brought and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his fields. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses uh, Shelemai, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, according uh, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Uh, Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you were doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark in the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, 
or for yourself. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, uh, was the son-in-law of Sambalot, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse from them every foreign thing, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. The word of the Lord. This morning, even though we read all pretty much all of Nehemiah 13, we're really going to spend all of our time on one verse. I'm going to go about an hour on verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them. We, uh, we're going to try some new discipline here at Trinity, or Rockwell Press. <laughs> Starting with Dwayne Piercy. <laughs> we're going Old Testament. No, today we're in Nehemiah 13, and we're actually going to be bringing our series to a close. Uh, from Ezra and Nehemiah. And as you read Nehemiah 13, you can tell right off the bat that uh, it doesn't exactly end on a high note. This was a uh, blockbuster movie, it, en- it would end a lot better because we like happy endings, and Nehemiah doesn't really seem to give us one at the end of his, uh, his memoir to us. And after all of his labor, the book ends with a huge question mark. Is there actually really any hope for God's people in the midst of the fact that they continue to turn away. Nehemiah asked the question, after all of his effort, has all of this been for nothing? It's a disheartening conclusion to a story that seemed to start so differently. But I think uh, if we understand the story of Nehemiah correctly this morning, it's supposed to end this way. It's supposed to end sour and distasteful. And that's how some stories are. I remember this week, um, I read the Harry Potter series years ago in, in seminary. And uh, my Greek three grades uh, suffered tremendously. But um, I encouraged Melissa, after I finished it, to read it. And she took a couple of years to read it. And she got through book six, and there's seven books total. She got through book six, and she took some time off to read book seven. I kept saying, you've got to read it. I really want, I want you to finish it so we can share in the story together, you know, because I, I loved it. And I remember she kind of got halfway through it, and one Saturday she kind of sat down, and she was just going to plow through it. She was going to push right on through. So she goes in the bedroom, she shuts the door, and I'm out in the living room, and, and uh, a few hours later I hear her go, No! No! She walks outside into the living room, takes the book, throws it on the couch, and she said, It's not supposed to end this way. I hate Harry Potter, and I hate J.K. Rowling. She goes back in the bedroom and slams the door shut. And I walk in there a little bit later, and uh, fearing for my life, and she, uh, she was actually in tears a little bit. She was so frustrated by the ending. 
somebody that uh, she connected with in the story, tragedy struck. And she kept saying, you know, it, it wasn't supposed to be like this. It wasn't supposed to end this way. The story was supposed to end differently. Now, we read Nehemiah 13, and uh, you might not have the desire to throw your Bible on the ground or anything, but it still is that same sentiment where it's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way, and the truth is it is supposed to be this way. It has to end this way for there to be any hope for us. When this story began in Ezra 1, it was actually hopeful. It was about a fresh start. It was a new beginning for Israel. They'd been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon because they rebelled against God for centuries and they ignored his warnings over and over again. And then after these 70 years, King Cyrus, King Cyrus issues his decree. Seemingly out of nowhere, a miracle happens and Cyrus says, all of Israel can now return home and rebuild their homeland and rebuild their temple and rebuild their city. And God gives Israel a second chance to become the people that he'd intended for them to be. So after Ezra returns and completes the reconstruction of the temple, we followed Nehemiah and we rebuilt the walls of the city. And then we rebuilt the city itself. And then in the last five chapters that we've actually skipped in Nehemiah 7 through 12, it's essentially Israel rededicating their lives to God recommitting their energy and resources to being the people that he wanted them to be. And they finally took ownership of their story, and they wanted to be who God wanted them to be. And at the end of chapter 12, everything is in place. Everything seems bright and hopeful. And it would be nice if the story ended there, but we have to do business with Nehemiah 13. At the beginning of the chapter in verse 6, Nehemiah says that after, uh, after he put everything in place, after he'd gotten everything in place for the temple and for worship to take place, he had to return home to King Artaxerxes for a time, because if you remember, he was the cupbearer to the king, and so he was given a leave to do the work, and he had to return home to Artaxerxes. But then after that, he was allowed to return back to uh, Jerusalem, and the Israel that he found was far different than the one that he'd left. Their recommitment had, uh, to God was short-lived, and they turned back. They turned back on their commitments to the Lord. And just a couple of chapters after they were so adamant about devoting themselves to God and to his purposes for their lives, as soon as Nehemiah is gone, they reject God all over again. They didn't want to be the people that God wanted them to be. It's the brass tacks of the story that they didn't want to live the life that God wanted them to live. And we know what this is like, don't we? We felt distant from God and... In moments of inspiration, we get serious about our recommitment. We get serious about rededicating ourselves and buying a new, buying a new devotional or setting our alarm to get up early to pray. We know what it's like to recommit ourselves, and we also know what it's like to fall short of our recommitments. There's something in our hearts that just turns away. And if it's left up to us, then it is hopeless. And Israel also rejected God shortly after they'd recommitted. But what we need to see is that this rejection that we see in uh, Israel isn't just some blatant apostasy, okay? They didn't, um, Nehemiah doesn't return to Jerusalem and find that all of a sudden all of Israel had become atheists. And they no longer believed in God and they apostatized and turned away. That wasn't what their rejection looked like. It was far more subtle than that. The rejection of God came about 
by complacency. Something as simple as complacency. They began to mix God with that which is foreign. They rejected God by trying to blend him with that which he had forbidden. And we get a glimpse of this immediately in verse 4 and 5. It's a, it's a bad omen, if you will, of what Nehemiah is going to find throughout uh, going on in Israel. He returns and he finds that Eliashib, the high priest, had allowed for Tobiah. If you remember Tobiah, he's been working against Nehemiah all this time, trying to make sure the walls are not rebuilt and not seeking the welfare of Israel. Eliashib had allowed Tobiah to use the temple as his own personal storage unit to take all of his goods, his wealth, and to store his valuables inside the temple. And this might seem simple. It might seem like a favor. It might seem like an olive branch to an enemy of Israel. But it's a foreshadowing of the state of affairs in Israel that they'd become complacent and they turned away from God by allowing foreign people and foreign practices to invade the spaces in their lives that was meant for God alone. And the truth is, there's no urgency. Nehemiah returns, there's no urgency, there's no perceived danger with what's going on. Israel just kind of lets this happen slowly over time, and they reject God by the fact that they become lethargic towards sin, and they become lethargic towards God himself. I think if we look at ourselves in this story, I think that it, we have to recognize that we often, it's easy for us to often think better of ourselves. It's easy for us to think better of ourselves. When we consider sin in our own lives, we easily minimize it or we um, minimize its influence. And so when we think about we are minimizing its presence and minimizing its influence, well, how do we minimize its presence? Well, maybe just a couple of questions we could figure out how we minimize it. If I ask you the question, what sin are you working on right now? What's a sin in your life that you've tried to eradicate? What's a sin that grips your heart that you know you need to get rid of? And maybe you can think of one, but what about two? What's another sin? The truth is we often don't think that it's there as much as it is. We also minimize its influence, and we think that if we do have sin in our lives, we can minimize its influence and its power by simply thinking that maybe we'll just try harder and focus ourselves a little bit more. Or we'll seek more accountability and then we'll be set. The truth is, complacency settles into our own lives when there's no urgency, there's no perceived threat. And when we don't take sin seriously, then it slowly, the way it works is that it slowly and patiently takes up more room in the temple of our hearts. And it makes us think that everything is okay. For us, as God's people, there's a complacency that we can settle into that's so dangerous for us. Because complacency means two things, that we both neglect the problem and we also neglect the solution. And this complacency that Nehemiah finds is is staggering because Israel is committing the same exact sins all over again that sent them into exile in the first place. And we know that too, don't we? The sins that we continue to struggle with, we know the consequences and yet we still can't let go of them. And their complacency is created by forgetting the past. Same as us. We forget the consequences and we forget what happens. 
But when we forget the past, it also means that we have to give up the future that God wants for us the same way they did. They continued to forget the past, and they continued in their sin and rejection of God, which also meant by virtue of the fact that they, forget, that they forgot the past, that they also had to forget the future and give up the one that God intended for them. But this complacency uh, we see in Nehemiah 13 plays itself out in three different ways that I think are common for us as well. We see three ways of how they and both we fall far short of God's intentions for us. And we see it through tithe, we see it through Sabbath, we see it through our children. We see our own complacency through our money, through rest, and through our children. The first issue is tithe that we see in verse 10. When Nehemiah returns, he doesn't find any Levites at the temple. No one's offering sacrifices anymore because the people had stopped giving tithes. The sacrificial system, if we remember, was designed by God so that the people would support the Levites and the Levites would support the people through offering their sacrifices on their behalf. The Levites were the ones that offered the sacrifices and constantly worshipped in the temple. And so when Nehemiah returns, there's no longer any sacrifices being offered for the people. And the temple was was abandoned once again. There's no Levites, no singers, no smell of incense in the holy place, no smell of smoke burning on the altar. It's abandoned. And the, the whole point of the priesthood is that the people would have access to God. The temple was the place where heaven and earth met. And the Levites and the priesthood were the ones who mediated that agreement that place where God and man met. It's where God dwelled with his people. And so for the tithes to stop coming in, what the people were really saying is, God, we don't need you. We would rather use the temple for other things. We would rather take the space that was meant for my tithe, and I'd rather clear all of that out, and I'd rather take my enemy, Tobiah, who wants nothing good for me, and I'd rather take all of his goods and put it in the temple. I'd rather seek his presence than yours. The truth is, tithing is about a lot more than money. It's an expression of the value we place on God's presence in our lives. Our tithe isn't, you know, our tithe for us as a church, if we, if we put it in our own context, it's not simply about keeping the lights on or paying salaries. It's not just about meeting the budget. It's about embracing and taking ownership of how God has designed to meet with you. If you took away everyone's tithe in this church, what would we have left? If everybody stopped tithing, what would we have left? Where would be the preaching of his word? Where would the songs that we sing together be? Where would our fellowship be? Where would our taking of the Lord's Supper together as a family be? Where would the people be that would support you and love you and care for you? When life got hard, tornadoes hit, finances fell apart, jobs were lost, tragedy struck. Tithing is about a lot more than money. It's about embracing the life that God has given us together because this is exactly where God promises to meet us. It's about gratitude because what God promises to give us in return is far more than anything we would give. 
And it's so foolish for Israel to reject God because he wanted to give them far more than they would give him. And their story is one where the bride of their dreams was waiting for them at the altar that paid for the entire ceremony and everything. They paid for it all. But they were unwilling to show up because they're unwilling to cough up enough money to rent a tuxedo. It's foolish. And complacency had set into their life. And they rejected God. And the second way that complacency invades Israel is in verse 15. It's through the Sabbath. It's a day of rest and worship. But what Nehemiah finds when he returns is something far different. He finds the people working and selling and making their goods. He sees foreigners coming into the city, not to worship and learn who this God is, but to buy and to sell and to make money. And the significance of this, the the problem for this, is that not observing the Sabbath was one of the main reasons that Israel went into exile in the first place. If you look in Jeremiah, he comes down, God comes down so hard on Israel, and he says, the reason I'm sending you into into exile is so that the land can finally have rest. Because you work, you work, and you work. And the way that God describes their goods and their money that they bring into the temple and to the city on the Sabbath, he calls them burdens. He says, I will take your burdens off of you on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about turning to God and resting in him, but the problem is that Israel was never willing to do it. And the, the Sabbath is, if we understand it in the whole picture of the scriptures, it's ultimately points us back to creation where God rests himself. And God gives Moses, when he gives Moses the law, one of the laws is to observe the Sabbath so that they will cease from their labor and they will rest. Why is that? Why is that so important to God that the people, that his people, learn to be a people of rest? Well, what happens to you when you stop and try and rest? What happens if you just took tomorrow, if you could, and didn't have to go to work? What happens if you took Saturday and you just stopped and you tried to rest? I think what happens is we have things that begin to rise to the surface. When we slow down and we stop, we begin to feel anxiety, worry, our need for control, our compulsion to go and do and accomplish. It's by resting that we're confronted with all of the images and all of the ideas and all of the lies that we believe about what will truly bring rest and peace for us. You know, oh, if I could just get that project done or if I could just get a few more errands run or get my week set and prepared for, then I'd be able to rest if I could just get these things done. I certainly know that. Monday is my day off. It's funny how I always look forward to Mondays, my day off to rest, but then when Monday hits, I just, it's so hard for me to let go. It's one more day to prepare a sermon. It's one more day to prepare for Wednesdays. It's one more day to prepare for projects here at church or to get some things done. It's amazing how we can want rest, and then when it's available to us, we turn away. And I think that one thing we need to see by the fact that they ignore the Sabbath is that for them to ignore rest, it's nothing short of slavery. That God wants them to rest so they can see how tired they really are. 
we're bad at understanding our anxiety and our doubt and our uncertainty. We're not very good at understanding how much that rules our hearts. And God says to stop so that we can see how tired we truly are. And when that stuff rises to the surface, that's when we can offer it to God and we can hear God say, I am your creator and your sustainer, not your job, not your business, not any deals that you can make, not your preparation for the week, not more errands, not being the best mother or father or the most prepared. None of those things will bring rest. And rest was worked into the rhythm of life for Israel because God is the God of rest. And we hear it in Jesus' call. He says, come unto me, that rest is ultimately found in a person. Come unto me if you are weary and you're burdened, and I will give you rest. But for Israel, and perhaps for us, the busy ways of the world crept into their hearts, and there was no more room for God. And they became complacent. And lastly, we see in uh, verses 24 and 25, the complacency of children. And how Israel married them off to other nations and to other people through intermarriage. And one thing to remember about intermarriage is that marriages during this time were arranged. And since having my own, I've realized how wise and wonderful uh, arranged marriages are. And so I've already sent out some offers to the Swindles and to uh, the Davids about arranged marriages. There's wisdom there. But I think the fact that uh, the marriages were arranged helps us understand the fact that the values and the commitments of the parents, the values and commitments of the parents were seen in their marriage agreements for their children. And so instead of marrying their children within the covenant community, with their relationship with God as the most important thing, they married them off to others. They married them off to a foreigner or a neighbor down the street to perhaps secure their financial portfolio or their influence in the region. And the danger of this is that within one generation, half of the children of Israel no longer spoke Hebrew, which the significance of that is that they could no longer worship. They no longer knew the language of God. They no longer knew their scriptures. They no longer knew how to worship the Lord, which ultimately means that intermarriage with foreigners is about extinction. They were offering up their children as a sacrifice for their own desires and their own intentions rather than offering them to God. Nehemiah reminds them, he says, have you forgotten so quickly? Have you forgotten so quickly the dangers of intermarriage, the way that other gods come in and the way that our children turn to other gods through it? And they'd forgotten God's promises and his covenant with Abraham that he wanted to be the God, their God, and also the God of their children. But the stipulation was they had to bring their children to God. They had to offer them to him. Perhaps it's easier for us to look down on Israel through intermarriage because, you know, we think that, we often think, at least I know I do. It's easy to think that I would do it differently. But in its essence, we can easily fall into the same trap. We can easily marry our children to our notions of success, purpose, meaning, well-being, and Jesus simply becomes an afterthought. If you think about how much time and energy and effort goes into sports and grades and activities and college preparation, we have no problem encouraging those things. And of course those are good things. 
But we don't expect our kids to wake up one day and be amazing at piano or ballet or math without putting in any effort. And so why do we do that with their faith? Why would we do that with their relationship with Jesus? Anything that matters in life isn't learned by proximity. And neither is our faith. It's learned by doing it and being taught. And Jesus makes a great promise. He continues the promise. And he says, let the children, your children, come unto me. Don't rob me of their presence. Don't rob me of the gift that they are to me because I want to be their God. And certainly your children are a precious gift to you. But as parents, we have to reject complacency for our children by also recognizing that you are a gift to your children as well. You might not feel that way, but you most certainly are. Your gift to your children because you have the opportunity to introduce them to Jesus. To tell them about the glories and the goodness and grace of their Savior and King. But the truth is, Israel didn't teach their children about God didn't teach their children about their faith. And it's for the same reasons that we might not. It's because it might not be important to us, and so why would it be important for them? So we see in all these three ways the seriousness with which Israel turns away and became complacent. It's a picture of how people slowly turn away from God and reject Him. And they did it by forgetting their past, forgetting the consequences. And they also gave up the future that God wanted for them. And they returned to old sins and old ways because their hearts just simply could not let go of the things of this world. And by forgetting the past and the future, they simply settled for how to make their lives easier in the present. And you can hear at the end of Nehemiah's prayer, At the very end of the book, you can hear his desperation. He knows that even though he's tried to straighten everything up, it's probably not going to last. He's done the best he could. He's tried so hard, but the people's hearts are just simply bent away from God and refuse to worship him. And so what happens if he leaves again? He's not a foolish or stupid man. He knows exactly what will happen. And all he has left is to hope that God will be gracious. He says, remember me, oh my God, for good. It's a prayer of a desperate man who knows his only hope for, can come through God's mercy. And basically his prayer is asking the question, God, will you honor the sacrifices that I have made? Even when your people continue to turn away from you over and over and over again. We come to Nehemiah's prayer at the end of chapter 13, and the truth is we recognize that something else has to be destroyed for God's people to ultimately be free from their destructive cycle of sin. Something remains that needs to be destroyed for God's people to continue to be the peop- or to become the people that he intended for them to be. And this is where we get, I think, to the point of Ezra and Nehemiah's story. For true worship to be established, something has to be destroyed. For true worship to be established, something has to be destroyed. If you look at the book of Exodus, for Israel to be free to worship and learn about their God, Pharaoh had to be destroyed. 
If you look at the law and the sacrificial system for atonement to happen, the sacrifices had to be destroyed. For Israel to inherit the promised land and to have peace and rest, their enemies had to be destroyed. But when they still turned away from God, century after century after Solomon and every king after him, and they would not turn to God, God destroys the temple, destroys Jerusalem, so that they would finally wake up to the severity of their sin and the damage that it truly causes. And then when they're in exile, God destroys their bondage by miraculously changing the heart of Cyrus to let them return home and rebuild their city. And when Israel finally returns home and Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild the temple and its cities and its city and its walls, the people still forget and turn away from God and his purposes for them. History repeats itself over and over and over and over again. And up until this point, no matter what is destroyed, it still will not wake people up to their sin. And it will still not let them embrace the fact that God's promises are better for them. And so the question is, what's left to be destroyed after the temple didn't work? What's left to be destroyed? And after Nehemiah, after his questions, there's effectively 400 years of silence. His question rings throughout centuries, waiting to be answered. And it ultimately points us to Jesus, because Jesus answers the question by turning to the Father and he says, destroy me. Destroy me. The only way that sin will be destroyed in its power over our people is for me to be destroyed. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah ultimately points us to a Savior that allowed us to destroy him. He's the one who endured all of our hostility and contempt so that he might finally destroy the stubborn walls of our own hearts. And he built worship by being destroyed himself. This morning you may have found yourself complacent. You feel distant from God. You feel stuck in that cycle of recommitting yourself, but then falling away, and you wonder, is there any hope? Is there any hope? And maybe you want closeness with Jesus, but at the same time, you don't really want to address any sin in your life. And this morning, I would challenge you to remember the cross, to not forget, as those who have gone before us forgot. We've been given a better promise. So I challenge you to remember the cross, because we never graduate from the cross and its importance, and we never move on to bigger and better theology, because the cross is our theology. It is the point. And when we remember the cross where Jesus was destroyed, it puts us to a decision. We either continue to willfully sin and live by a story that prefers Jesus to be dead, or at the cross we see the love of our Savior that so willingly let himself be destroyed so that we might be rebuilt. There's nothing that can destroy the power of sin in your life except understanding the love that Jesus has for you that's displayed through his cross. There's nothing that can destroy the power of sin until you understand the love of a God that would let you destroy him. So you could ultimately see not only the heinousness and destructive power of your sin, but you could also see how much he loves you.
And it's at the cross that we find the power to reject complacency and experience the hope of a new life. And it's there that our hearts can learn to sing the chorus of one of my favorite hymns. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This morning, gaze at the cross and behold the love and sin-destroying power of your Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you knowing that we're forgetful people. We come before you knowing the power of sin in our lives, and we so easily become complacent, and we reject you, and we choose sin rather than life. But we thank you that you know our estate. We thank you that despite our unwillingness to turn to you, you turn to us. You turned to us in your cross. And you ultimately gave up your life so that we might be rebuilt. And that we might have the joy that comes from knowing you and knowing the love that you have for us. We thank you that you spared nothing in your pursuit of us. And we ask this morning that you would capture our hearts so that we might learn to give what we have back to you. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.